0: coming up on the psychedelic therapy podcast
1: anyone who comes from a buddhist tradition typically believes that there is some element of raising the sins of the ancestors if you are to speak about mental health so there's there's challenges to overcome both in relation to the ability to speak about mental health, which is just at its, you know, very earliest stages here in the region. And then there's this secondary challenge around, okay, we've got all this great science and evidence for plant medicine. Who's going to be first in terms of academic research? Who's going to be, you know, first in terms of outspoken psychiatrists and thought leaders from more of a medical perspective that are willing to, uh, jump on a plane and and go for some of their own experiences. So that's the kind of networks that we've been beginning to build around academia, around more open-minded psychiatric practitioners or, or mental health practitioners.
0: Welcome to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast, a weekly conversation series with leaders in psychedelic culture designed for therapists Healers, retreat leaders, and passionate enthusiasts, presented by Maya and hosted by me, Eamon Armstrong. Welcome back to the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. I'm your host, Eamon Armstrong. Today on the show, I'm speaking to a man who is changing the narrative around plant medicine in Asia. Jonathan De Potter, founder of Behold Retreats, has big visions for the region. And it starts with helping business leaders to awaken. On the show, we talk about the challenges of addressing mental health issues in Asia. Jonathan shares his perspective of what makes great psychedelic practitioners from his own experience. We discuss Behold Retreats and why Jonathan is focusing on healing leaders in the business world. We also review medical screening and onboarding of patients. Finally, Jonathan shares his predictions for the future of plant medicine in Asia. Prior to launching Behold Retreats in March, Jonathan directed business strategy for Accenture in Hong Kong. His personal experience with plant medicine radically altered the course of his life, and he has spent five years working with the medicine before launching his retreat company. Behold has held retreats in Mexico, Ecuador, and Costa Rica, and is planning to expand to Peru, the Netherlands, Portugal, and Spain. Before we get started, here's a message from Maya the platform designed to help psychedelic practitioners track, measure, and illustrate the health outcomes of their work, and the organization that makes this podcast possible. Maya is currently working with individual ketamine practitioners in its pilot program called the Council of Guides. If you're interested in being a part of this group, helping to co-create the Maya platform and getting first access, please visit the Council of Guides page on the Maya website, and that's at www.mayahealth.com/council. And now, here is Jonathan De Potter. Jonathan, welcome to the psychedelic therapy podcast. It's such a pleasure to speak to you today. Great to be here, Amon. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. And just before we started recording, I had to cut you off because you were beginning to tell your story of getting involved in this space, and I was I was listening, and I was like, Ah, oh, you know, this sounds like the beginning of a podcast. So I want to take <laughs> us back to that moment just a few moments ago when you spoke about your first experience. With ayahuasca, and how you decided you wanted to take some time to really understand the medicine, the community, the space before creating your own offering. And I think that's very wise. So I wanted to talk about that and why you made that decision and how you went about exploring more deeply the space of psychedelic healing.
1: Yeah, sure. Happy to share. And yeah, it's, um, you know, I think probably this community, is, as much as any other out there, is well aware that there's. Any number of overnight shamans these days that you know have have their single journey and then you know the space of a few weeks later they've perhaps got a feather in their hat and uh, now they've reinvented themselves as as something entirely new. So, yeah, I, I had I had my experience, my first experience about five years ago now, and I was completely overwhelmed, honestly speaking. It was it was I was under educated, I was underprepared. I was I now understand that I was poorly spiritually cared for during the experience and finally i also had pretty much no integration support nor did i even know that there was such a thing as integration support at the time Uh, and so so that was it was it was a monumentous experience but at the same time i was i was back to whom i was before about a month later so i missed out on all of the potential benefits in terms of integration and so then, then you know along with my own plant medicine work over the years that followed began to be able to integrate more and understand that yeah there's there's such an incredibly deep amount in relation to this space and that and that just because it's a, a nice website and doesn't necessarily equate to to the work being done at the highest level. so that that then kind of led me into thinking about this more from a business perspective and how to how to bring people from the region here in Asia in particular on to into and onto the best experiences possible in a legal context. And so that's really, that was the uh, genesis for Behold Retreats, which is we need to begin to start the, the change in the narrative in relation to plant medicine. Here in Asia, we've got 5 billion people in the region. We've got 520 million suffering from mental health disorders. And there's literally no research. And I believe I'm the first person on LinkedIn that's put their name to the subject in the region uh, above board there might be there might be a few others that i'm upsetting as, as i say that but i'm the first that i've been able to find so so that was really the motivation for behold retreats is like okay great so there's you know i i was living in in hong kong for many years in the corporate world there between you know the the mega cities in the region and seeing a lot of people that were you know financially well off but but emotionally not so well off and so you know, how is it that, that I could begin to encourage more people from a professional background in particular to open up to find the courage to listen to the plants?
0: Well, I'm glad that you touched on the idea of plant medicine and changing that narrative in Asia, because on a personal note, that's something that I'm very interested in talking to you about today. I was thinking maybe we'd chat about this at the end, but let's just talk about it now. you know sure. I've traveled in Asia. I've seen signs in airports that say that that drug offenses will be met with capital punishment. It seems to be the place that is perhaps the Middle East as well, but I think um, certain parts of of Asia are some of the places that have the most opposition to anything that is categorized as a mind altering substance and so I'm cu- really curious like how how are you going about trying to change that narrative? How out are you able to be about the fact that you're doing this work, and and how are people in the region connecting with Beholder Retreats and then choosing to then go on these on these journeys to Latin America, to places in Europe, to have these experiences?
1: Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> perhaps perhaps I'll take a couple seconds just kind of setting what I setting the context for what I understand about this subject in relation to culture in the region, broadly speaking, obviously, because there are so many distinct cultures in in the region. So I think in a broad sense, most people in the region don't actually have much of an understanding of of what a psychedelic is. They have a little bit of a crazy association, as is commonly the case in, in North America and Europe. But the reality is that there hasn't really been a culture of psychedelics as we have seen since, say, the 1960s in in the U.S. And, and parts of Europe. And so there's actually an opportunity in Asia to build the narrative in a much better way. So, you know, instead of using psychedelics, we try to use plant medicine, entheogen plant medicine, because, again, that's that's, I think, language is an important component of, of this work, you know, words like divinity, words like enlightenment, words like clarity, you know, there's so much of these words that have been kind of cast out of the, the modern narrative that I think need to be brought back in with a strong spiritual appreciation. And, and I think, you know, in Asia, I see that there's a big opportunity there to, to use plant medicine as opposed to, to psychedelics. Now there is, there is, as you'll probably be aware, there is pretty strong evidence that in the second and ninth centuries, there were Buddhist traditions that were working with mushrooms. And so, you know, most, most Asian people are surprised and interested to hear more about that. And I typically point them in the right direction because I'm, I'm no expert on the matter. And then, and then there are also, you know, there, there's also a tradition of plant medicine here in the region. Like whether we're talking about Ayurvedic traditions or Chinese traditions or local tribal traditions that kind of ex, that kind of exist throughout Asia, it's very much still today a plant medicine-oriented culture, right? Not necessarily psychedelic plant medicine, but. Plant medicine, nonetheless, and so there still are. I mean, there's still large numbers of kind of indigenous plant medicine practitioners throughout Asia, and that's something that not many uh, Westerners actually actually recognize. They just assume that you know Western medicine has permeated the world, and and that that's the reality. I mean, most people are aware that that's what's happening in China and in India that there's still strong plant medicine traditions, but not necessarily aware of that also. Being the case in say Thailand or Indonesia or or one of the the many other countries, so you no know, people people have been more receptive and open-minded on the whole than I did expect. There's there's another dynamic here in relation to this subject which is noteworthy. Which anyone who comes from a Buddhist tradition typically believes that. There is some element of raising the sins of the ancestors if you are to speak about mental health challenges. And so, you know, I've got many Chinese friends, even Australian or Canadian Chinese friends who grew up, you know, between those two places and are still not even able to raise the topic of, say, some anxiety or depression with their parents. They will, you know, they will just be asked to kind of put that cat back in the bag. Thank you. Um, so there's there's challenges to overcome both in relation to the ability to speak about mental health, which is just at its, you know, very earliest stages here in the region. And then there's this secondary challenge around, okay, we've got all this great science and evidence for plant medicine. Who's going to be first in terms of academic research? Who's going to be, you know, first in terms of outspoken psychiatrists and thought leaders from more of a medical perspective that are willing to, uh, Jump on a plane and and go for some of their own experiences. So that's the kind of networks that we've been beginning to build around academia, around more open minded psychiatric practitioners or or mental health practitioners. Honestly speaking, they're typically what we call ABC, BBC, or CBC, American, British, or Canadian born Chinese, as opposed to, you know, someone who's born and raised in Japan or born and raised in, in Thailand because yeah, they're just it's more challenging for them to open up to to these sorts of experiences today
0: that's so fascinating I, I I can't help but wonder you know for people listening who are themselves psychedelic practitioners who really would like to be part of this work that you're doing in terms of changing this narrative and getting involved it seems like it would be potentially difficult culturally difficult to engage coming from the West but it sounds like you've been able to do a a good job at that. So I'm curious, how long have you lived in Hong Kong, and how have you been able to do some of this cross cultural communication? Particularly when the culture itself, as you've pointed out, with Chinese culture around mental health, is kind of closed to certain subjects. And here you are, a Westerner. How do you kind of bridge that gap?
1: Yeah, it's a uh, it's the right question to ask. So so during my time in Hong Kong, I and mean, I'm actually I'm actually in Copenhagen um, in um, in Thailand at the moment on an island like you are. But during my time in Hong Kong, you know, I I had the pleasure of working with a broad variety of companies, both multinationals who were trying to expand their footprint in Asia-Pacific, as well as local Chinese companies, both Hong Kong and mainland Chinese companies who were trying to broaden out into the world, right? And so one of my major clients was Huawei, the the Chinese tech company. And so we were forming strategic partnerships with them and um, helping them, on on their growth journey and so you know it, you come to understand the differences in the business world and the expectations in terms of interactions and dynamics you know the the distinction the difference that I that I would make in the story I sometimes tell is that actually there's this fascinating research that I think it came from Berkeley where they put people's heads into this strange contraption and then they show them the fo- this photo. And there's two, there was two groups of people. One was a group of Chinese people. The other was a group of Americans, I believe. And they showed them this photo of a tiger about to drink from a river. And this tiger, just as it's about to drink, is looking directly at the camera when this photo was taken. So what they've done in this research is they have basically shown this photo, they've pulled up the veil from in front of people and then they've tracked how their eyes look at the photo and what they saw was that a chinese person will look at the front of the river on the right of the tiger it will look back at the leaves on the right of the tiger it will look back at the forest behind the tiger then it will look back on the other side of the leaves and then back down at the river and then the eyes will settle finally just like 10 percent of the time on the body on the the back of the the tiger now that in in contrast to how say A Westerner looks at the photo, a Westerner American just looks at Eye of the Tiger directly. And so, you know, there's, there's, there's a, there was, this was actually shared by one of the board members of of Starbucks. And he said, you know, there's a great lesson in that, which is that the Chinese people and, and Asian people in general believe that if you explain the context of a given thing, you, ho- you will have explained the thing by definition. Whereas here in the West, if, if you come in, you say, okay, you've got a profitability problem. We're going to jack up your revenues by 10% and then we're going to drop this by 5% and then you're going to hit, you know, Chinese people will not engage in that conversation. They really want to talk about the geopolitical. They want to talk about the history. They want to talk about the future. They want to talk about technology trends. They want to talk about changing in trade dynamics. All of those sorts of things need to come to the fore so that you you know, come to build a common understanding between the two of you before you could ever get to something as narrow and simplistic as a profitability challenge. So the nature of consulting in that environment is substantially different than, um, than say, what I had with my typical multinational Western clients.
0: Wow. That's it's so fascinating. I wonder how I wonder what kind of tests you could do around psychedelic or plant medicine healing that would represent <laughs> a similar thing as the tiger picture. Because, you know, the context of plant medicine healing is actually extraordinarily important and a lot of times and maybe there is a cultural difference here between the West and Asia, certainly between you know Americans and and folks in Latin America who are who are doing this healing but we tend to go for okay I'm going to have the experience and the experience is going to solve the problem and then I just go straight for it do the thing and then back to my life and of course as as I know you know that's not how it works you highlighted <laughs> your first experience as one where you didn't feel particularly spiritually held there was no integration you weren't even told about integration at what point in your journey did you discover the kind of healing that you felt was really the right way to do this work, and that then inspired you to offer this work in in that capacity?
1: Yeah, yeah. There's, there's. I, I want to build on one thing that you you shared there, which I think is relevant in terms of setting setting context, and then I'll come to to my own my own journey and realization what what you shared there is is actually spot on in the sense that what i see in the west generally speaking is that people often externalize the gap between what they expect and rea- in reality today i think in particular americans you can see you know everything that's going on in the world just now is is a pretty um, full on representation of, of that dynamic whereas in asia people tend to repress right so the the collective always takes priority over the individual whereas in america we've all been taught that you know, little, little layman and and little Johnny are all important. And, you know, you can grow up to be an astronaut and whatever else uh, it is that you may dream, which I think is part of the beauty, absolutely, of of the culture. But uh, at the same time, it means that when when people are met with disappointment, as as we all are, then then that becomes quite challenging and quite externalized. Whereas in Asia, that's as as those gaps emerge, you know, in terms of expectation and reality, people tend to repress that. And so, yeah, it's a very different Cultural context under which to do this work as well. So, so yeah. So, in terms of my own my own experience and my own journey, so I guess I I had the benefit. I, I count myself very fortunate. I was able to take you know weeks at a time off over the the subsequent years, and and probably attended eight to ten plant medicine retreats over that period, and honestly speaking, I thought and felt like I was making incredible progress along along the path. You know, I had begun taking my meditation practice much more seriously. I began to do some yoga, started eating better, and, you know, was really working on, you know, reading a lot more in terms of spiritual books, which I had been completely closed off to for a uh, majority of my life. And so, yeah, I felt like I was making really good progress, but it wasn't until happened to stumble upon some practitioners that were doing this work at an incredibly high level that i mean what they were able to do with me over the space of just a few months really was just like wow okay what what you guys are able to do is just order of magnitudes different from what is typically available and out there and you know has five-star reviews against it and so that really that really then kind of turbocharged my interest and so very excited to have These two in particular is spiritual guidance behind our business and and to really begin to understand, okay, what are the differences in terms of people who are doing this work at a high level versus people who are doing this work? And, And how is it that we can begin to orchestrate a really exceptional experience that is the right container for this work so that it's not just, you know a week of getting downloaded upon in the jungle and then uh, and then a return to fluorescent lighting and and bad traffic
0: i'd love to zero in on the delta between what you'd say is just a sort of you know i think you called it a overnight shaman or someone who's who's holding space broadly but not necessarily at that high level that you discovered as i pointed mm. out our listeners are psychedelic therapists themselves many of them in psychedelic programs or aspiring to be and i'm sure that when they hear you speak about the difference between the kind of healing that you received would love to hear some 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 specifics about what really does make the difference between those two different mm. types of healings that are being offered
1: yeah and you know i hadn't actually Thought about this too deeply myself, believe it or not, in terms of how to articulate it. But but what immediately comes to mind is three categories, and this may not be the right the right way to categorize, but the human mind likes three, so so let's go. So the first is groups of people who are just serving medicine, right? So we have we have ayahuasca, or we have psilocybin, and we're going to give this to you, and we're going to be here with you and we're going to see what happens and and I think that's one group of people and I think there's a second and again this is oversimplification right but I think there's a second group which is you know really informed about the different sets of experiences that people can go through really great at holding space at really you know making the container the physical container there feel right and they have the the mental and the emotional skills to help people work through that for themselves in terms of like, oh, I can see this is coming up. Yes, this is, you know, this is not uncommon and how does that make you feel? And you know, just being there for the person in, in the best way possible. The third category is what I would describe as the people who really know what they're doing. And and I think this is so much more rare than than we understand. And, and that that it's exciting to think about how this space can mature because i think that's going to be a real point of leverage for improving mankind the more people who are able to skill themselves into this third category where they know what they're doing energetically and they're actually doing very important energetic work with the individual and they're also at a high level of consciousness themselves and i think this is a critical component that is that is being overlooked in this work at the moment is that there's you know the levels of consciousness of a given individual or practitioner is is reflected in the quality of their work. And so I think we all know people who have done lots of psychedelics, lots of plant medicine, and guess what? They still have, you know, they've got perhaps not a very a life that that kind of reflects the quality that you might expect, right? They, you go to their house and things are a mess. You, You check out their relationships and, you know, they've got all any number of disasters in terms of either romantic or friendships. And then, you know, you look at their career and, you know, they're, dabbling in a few different things, but they're not really taking anything seriously that, you know, they haven't found their true calling. They haven't found their interest and, and, you know, they're still judgmental of others and all of these other dynamics. You go, okay, wow, you've done a lot of plant medicine, but how's that going for you? And so I think it's so important that, that, yeah, we, that we try to, that those, those healers, those practitioners that are in this third category who one you know, they, they've got excellent plant medicine two They know what to do holding space. And three, they're actually, you know, skilled in terms of the energetic work that they're doing on an individual. Those people who are in those privileged positions are one, they're they're so uniquely placed, and two, you know, it's I think it's important that they begin to, you know, train train the trainers, so to speak, and so that there's this collective lifting of the capability of the energetic aspects of this work as well, which. Honestly speaking, I'm no expert in this space, but I've just been at the hands of experts and felt the difference as a recipient and been like, wow, this is a fundamentally different sport.
0: And so this is a good um, segue into talking about Behold Retreats themselves. Mm -hmm. I know that you have a priority of focusing on these particular kinds of practitioners of the third category. And I'm curious with the way that Behold Retreats are structured, is it the case that you have found retreats around the world that um, are run by or employ these high-level practitioners and then the role of Behold Retreats is actually to create like a travel package and other kind of auxiliary support to bring people particularly from, from Asia but also from around the world then to these centers where they receive healing from these high level practitioners or are you employing directly these people? Are you building your own retreats or plan to build your own retreat centers or is it more just kind of connecting people with the high quality retreat centers that you yourself or those that you work with have experienced?
1: Yeah so it's it's a little bit of both. We have we have done a number of our own we're we're still a relatively new business, right? We're only about 6 months into our own journey. We have at the moment I believe two just about three partner retreat centers that we work with and then in addition to that we are hosting our own retreats privately. We are thinking about also potentially doing some of our own group retreats, but we haven't we haven't quite got there yet. So at the moment we're keeping keeping things relatively small and, and private. And we're focused predominantly upon clients from the business world. We're focused upon people who, you know, they've been chasing the career success and the promotions and Whatever else, you know, the 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 outer outer world success and are still feeling stuck, are still feeling a bit lost, like something is missing. You know, that's really that's really been my own journey where I, you know, I had all of the, the outer world success, but I just felt like something was missing. And so that's that's a group that I can communicate to because that's been my career historically, and it's a it's a group that I can empathize with because it's been it's been my own journey. And so it's a it's a little bit of both, but at the moment we're actually just in the midst of launching our eight week program which will be all of the education preparation and coaching leading up to the the retreat a one week retreat and then subsequently about 3 or 4 weeks of integration following the retreat so we're very excited about that and we think that's going to be that's going to prove the best container for for
0: this work and so you spoke about taking about 5 years from your first experience with ayahuasca to getting to a place where you had this offering. And you talked about how during that period you were sort of researching what was really what was really good that was out there. I mean we've already talked mm-hmm. about sourcing these high level practitioners. I'm curious what else goes into making Behold Retreats different and special. Now, of course, you're six months in, so I'm sure there's some prototyping and there's that you're going to be iterating and, and seeing what's working. But I'm curious, when you first came to the table, looking at the fact that there are different retreat centers around the world, there are different different organizations that are leading people to Latin America, to other spaces to do this work. What What is it that you are weaving into Behold Retreats that you feel are really different and really stands out in the space?
1: Yeah, I think one is very structured and guided introspective work. So a the guided program really has a lot of questions within it to help people really understand the shapes of the inside of themselves. I think that one of the big lackings in this space is the, the mental and emotional work it's easy to have a, a psychedelic experience and to and to land back relatively where where you were rather than you know a, a few miles down the road in in the positive way so i think there's a massive opportunity in guiding people to do more of the mental and emotional work before during and after such an experience so that they are really c- able to come in not with, you know, vague high level intentions around like more clarity, but something that's really actually quite specific than actually reflects, say their negative thought patterns or their judgments or their inability to open their heart and, and to feel from, from their heart. And so, you know, what, what we are trying to do with our programs of work is to elevate consciousness. That is the singular outcome. So I'm not sure if you're you're familiar with Dr. David Hawkins' work, which I think is absolutely incredible. As I began my work in earnest, then you know the 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 therapists that I was working with were talking about everything to me in in terms of the levels of consciousness. And I was like, all right, it sounds like I better go educate myself on on what this is. And so that's that's very much built in and fundamental to the work that we're doing because in particular, you know, leaders from the business world are they're caught in their minds and, and in the mental frame. And it's difficult for them to even imagine something that sits outside of the mental frame. And you know, given the complexity that we find ourselves in 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 modern times, there's a lot of leaders out there who are trying to meet the complexity on its terms, right? With more, you know, more PowerPoints, more templates, more (laughs) Excel spreadsheets, more late night project meetings. And it's like, no, you just need to break through, you know, you just need to break through into transcend the mind such that you can you can operate from your heart and your intuition your wisdom that that exists within each and every one of us will begin to come to the fore and with that then you know that's the exponential being unlocked and, and you don't have to go try and meet all of this complexity on its terms because you can tap into your inner knowing and to use that to galvanize the team around you and and begin to move your business and the world forward and in the right direction as opposed to lots and lots of analytical activity.
0: So you've, you've chosen to focus on high performing individuals and I understand that part of that choice is around a mission of changing the world through certain leverage points. So the feeling being that if you can take some of these folks who are in these positions where they're leading organizations, where they have a lot of influence and impact and then you take them through this experience then they will necessarily from that experience be able to have a more positive impact on the world. And I'm curious, how do you, and I know you're just getting started six months in, how are you tracking the efficacy of your mission? How are you able to see like who you're bringing into the program and whether these plant medicine journeys are actually moving the needle on the impact that these people have in the world?
1: Yeah. Well, I think you know. There's, the first thing to say is that any business that is trying to do anything of scale in this space needs to make sure that they're thinking about humans as individuals. <laughs> this is It's not about how many thousands of people we can crank through the system. It's about how many amazing stories we can tell in relation to the clients that we have served individually. And that is, that is my core message out to anyone who's thinking about doing this is one, take it seriously. Two, if you're ever thinking about doing anything from a business perspective, that's beautiful. But make sure that you're serving you're serving the soul at the level of the soul because that's really what this work is all about so i mean I, don't know, I guess some of the stories that we have probably speak for themselves you know we one of our first clients was this texas ceo who had dead animals on the wall and you know big fan of hunting and maybe had a few different girls in a few different cities and you know the first conversation was was very honest between the two of us and you know we've taken him on two private retreats now and at the end of two retreats he said this is incredible work i can't believe this I'm bringing more of my hunting buddies on a retreat. I'm simplifying my life and I want to set up a foundation with the proceeds going towards the plants. I'm like, wow, okay. I was able to pair him up with an ethnobotanist, a real man of the earth to spend a week in the Amazon in such a way that he, you know, he, he recognized in just the first retreat in one week that he was living life in a a way that was entirely at odds with the, the way that life should be working, shall we say. And so those are, again, those are points of leverage. Like that's the client that we want. I say to my, you know, we can help a whole bunch of you know, middle managers from the banking world. But if we can get to a Texas CEO who's bring, bringing a whole bunch of his CEO hunting buddies down to a plant medicine retreat to get some lessons from Mother Nature, like that's what we're really talking about. Those are the those are the points of leverage. And you know, on his on his second retreat, you're gonna love this. On his second retreat, he really connected with one of the one of the 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 maids that was actually there at his his private villa. And so so they they brought the maid into ceremony. She was up for it, and she had just the most amazing and incredible breakthrough. I was just like, I was so blown away by, well, I mean, he's this big, you know, hard charging Texas CEO, the fact that he really connected with the maid and then invited her into the ceremony. I'm like, yes, that's, that's the beautiful energy that we want to be bringing into this world. And, you know, you forget the rest of it. This work is all about bringing more beautiful energy into this world and anything that's not focused at the level of the, the individual and not focused on bringing more beautiful energy into this world is just, is just simply misguided.
0: So when speaking about your Texas CEO friend, you talked about how he was struck with such a connection that he wanted to create a foundation to support the plants. I'm curious if you've had an experience like that and if Behold Retreats and your own work has aspects that are supporting indigenous lineages, supporting land policies in the region of you know, Latin America, I'm thinking specifically in this case. But how are how are you and Behold Retreats giving back to the plants and supporting these lineages?
1: Yeah. So it's, it's um, something that we've had on our minds, definitely. And um, I've had a number of conversations with many people who are much closer to the indigenous communities in Central and South America. But at the moment, to be honest with you, we're not doing anything because we're just simply too early in our journey. We are um we're not funded right so we are bootstrapped by um, yours truly and so we we don't have millions of dollars at our disposal the moment that we pass through the red line and into the green line is the moment that i will turn my mind to that in, in earnest because again our our motivation is is not predominantly commercial our our motivation is bringing more beautiful energy into the world but we have to we have to recognize the impact that the that this work represents and so absolutely you know have started those conversations there's nothing formal that that we're we're able to announce at this time
0: so These retreats, you said that you've got two or three retreat centers that you've already partnered with. Um, Looking Mm -hmm. on the website, it seems like you've got your eye on a couple of different locations, Latin America, but also Portugal, Spain, Amsterdam. What are the locations that you're working with currently and what are the locations that you're developing in terms of these retreats and, and also what medicines are being offered in these spaces?
1: Yeah. So at the moment, we're seeing that, you know, ayahuasca and psilocybin are by far and away the two that are in high demand. I think San Pedro needs a, a bit of a brand ambassador. I don't know if there's anyone who listens to your podcast that's up for the task because I think it's an incredible, incredible medicine that's being broadly overlooked, unfortunately. But uh, at the moment, so we've, we've hosted retreats in Mexico, in Ecuador, in Costa Rica. We're planning to have ones very soon in Peru. And uh, we've also had one in the Netherlands and still developing Portugal
0: and Spain. In terms of how the actual retreat is structured, one of the things that I saw highlighted in the website around kind of the points of difference around Behold Retreats that kind of stuck out in my mind, was around the preparation for folks entering into this space and the idea of medical screening. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious about how you do that medical screening, what you're screening for, um, because this is a big issue around safety and I know that safety is a major concern of yours for everyone in this space, but I know that that's part of the experience with Behold Retreats is that safety is is really important. How are you screening potential clients? What are you screening for and what does that process look like?
1: Yeah, so one of our advisors tells me that we now have the best medical screening. She thinks we have the best medical screening for, for ayahuasca, full stop. And she says it's interesting. There, she, she found an interesting dynamic in preparing this because she said she went through all of the, um, the Harvard Library literature that had the word ayahuasca in it in, in order to prepare our, our medical screening intake process, which is it's a six pager now, so it's relatively exhaustive. What, we, what she said was interesting in preparing the guidelines that, that go along with that is that there's two prescription medications, that only appear in uh, in a whole bunch of websites that are the contraindicated prescription medications. The only places that these two medications appear is in the list of contraindications on a whole bunch of ayahuasca retreat centers. So what she said, she said, she said we've gone ahead and removed those two because those are two medications that don't exist. So I think someone has a bit of a joke put in two non-existent medications into their screening and uh, everyone's just gone and copied their screening And so now you could just clearly see that they haven't done their own homework. But, you know, I I think that just speaks to the unregulated nature of this space, right? You've got basically this work is happening either in a clinical setting where you know that's that's one context it's happening illegally or it's happening in an unregulated environment where you know in Costa Rica or the Netherlands it's not that there's any sort of guidelines that are in place that people must adhere to it's that you know we expect that people are operating from the heart and that we hope for the best when they're doing this work but you know I think honestly speaking it's worth asking the question whether that's whether that's good enough I think Given the horror stories that we do here, I think it's probably I think it's probably fair to say, and I think your audience will agree that you know just trying to do your best is probably not enough in relation to you know this this work. So yeah, I mean, what we do in terms of our screening is um, pretty much the same as, as what others do. We we do a screening and then we pass it on to a, uh, a qualified therapist to review it, and if there's any red flags, then it's either a yes, no, or a maybe. If it's a maybe, then typically we work with the retreat center in order to, to make the decision collectively on behalf of the client. And we do, of course, we involve them throughout that process as well.
0: What are um, any of the other onboarding aspects of the, these particular retreats? Is there anything that you feel is kind of a point of difference with Behold that is part of the onboarding process itself?
1: We've had the benefit of some clients who've got um, quite a bit of runway. In terms of you know maybe they're three or six months out from from their retreat and so there's a lot of there's a lot of work that can be done between now and six months you know for example and so um, you know I think about it in terms of mind body heart and soul so you know the the outcomes that we're looking for ultimately is one elevating consciousness but two elevating mind body heart heart and soul and so you know we we step through we step people through a series of exercises to begin to do that. So whether it's you know, we try not, we, we take the time to understand them, right? So not just in terms of what's the sort of retreat they would like, but where are they in life? And do they have a meditation practice? Have they done breath work before? Do they have a movement practice, you know, and to share with them some different options, some different thoughts about how to make these things fun. I think that's a critical component, right? And it's, you don't, people don't just need a bunch of YouTube videos. It's like, Hey, why don't you and this other person decide to do an eight week yoga challenge together? And wouldn't that be fun and uh, see what comes of it and just, yeah, go, go, you know, have a green juice after and a bit of a chit chat and yeah, just see how you feel after that. And it's like, wow, I feel so good. You're like, yeah, that was, you know, great. Really glad that we've managed to find a way for you to make that fun so that it sticks. You know, there's all these people who, who are doing these things that are you know, how to, how to phrase this appropriately. There's a lot of people who feel like they're doing things because they should be doing them as opposed to them finding inherent joy within the activity. And so a lot of the, a lot of what we're trying to arm people with is the ways to find the joy within the activity. You know, it's, it's not that there's a gap between who you should be and who you are today. It's that who you are today might enjoy these other activities, which may lead you to be this completely more beautiful and amazing person out into the future. And so that's really the way that we try to frame it. So we spend a lot of time with our clients, like make make no mistake, like this is really about, you know, again, work at the level of the individual and making sure that they're, they're moving along their path.
0: So you make a distinction between these high quality practitioners who are actually serving the medicine and then therapists slash coaches that are available through behold retreats to support integration and I'm mm-hmm. curious are these are these folks employed then directly by behold retreats as integration coaches to support that kind of that all that follow up work after the retreat itself
1: no they're no they're not I think um I, I think coaches would probably grab their pitchforks and and burn down our organization if you tried to employ them in the in the traditional sense. And I think I think therapists are much the same. Uh, actually, uh, a good buddy of mine was he he runs a a, a company in in Silicon Valley doing uh, pet healthcare, and um, one of the dynamics he saw was that you know vet, veterinarians don't want to. They don't want to work in one of those big like, you know, one of those big clinics where you're just treated as a number and you're expected to crank out one one new case every 15 minutes, but they also don't want to be small business owners, right? They don't want to have to rent a space and go buy heavy equipment and go do business development and hire front and back office staff and like all of that you know business management stuff and so what he's been able to do with with his business is to create you know create the architecture and ecosystem so that people can do what they're good at and I think there's an equal opportunity here in the, in the plant medicine space. You know, the majority of plant medicine healers and plant medicine practitioners, they really just want to help people. The majority of coaches and therapists, they really just wanna they want to help people. Um, they don't necessarily want to do all of the aspects of of running a business. And so that's part of what we're trying to bring to the table is, first and foremost, you know, bringing together the necessary components for individuals to get the most out of these experiences, but secondly, to also architect these experiences in such a way that really benefits all of the practitioners as well. Because, you know, there's there's the, you know, the, the reality is that, you know, a lot of these retreat centers now, I think are graciously, a lot more retreat centers are taking the integration aspect more seriously than, say, when I had my my first experience five years ago, which is absolutely fantastic. But the, the, the reality is that it's unlikely that a retreat center is going to have the right coach or the right therapist on staff that exactly meets your needs, right? I mean, don't get me wrong. There's some incredible coaches and therapists out there. But what a 30-year-old venture capitalist from from silicon valley is looking for what she's looking for is very different from a, a 50 year old who's struggling with alcohol just after his divorce so so if you tell me that it's going to be the same integration therapist for those two people i would i would probably question that and so it's been really beautiful to see that you know the, some of the matching that we've been able to do between the the network of coaches and therapists that we have into the individual clients has just been amazing and even some of the non-coach therapists and it was the non non-commercial matching, should I describe it as, you know, there was a guy who I connected with who has healed himself of fibromyalgia with ayahuasca. And lo and behold, we had a, a client come through that was interested in, in exploring this for, for fibromyalgia. So just being able to connect people who have shared stories, shared interests, and, you know, shared histories, shared specialities in, in such a way, I think is, is for me, has been really energizing because, because that's what this work is all about, is just being able to connect people so that you know, people who want to help people and people who need help can, can be brought together. And that's, that's in essence, what we're, what we're orchestrating. And, you know, I think it's, it's, it's tech people come to me and be like, oh, you're, you know, building a healing platform. And it's like, no, 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 that's, that's not, that's not what we're doing. (laughs) Thank you. We're, we're, we're working at the level of the individual and that's, it's a human business and and no, we're not building a healing platform,
0: but, but thanks for asking. You speak of the difficulty for healers to then be small business owners. And I think a lot of people listening to the show can relate to that exact struggle. What they want to be Mm -hmm. doing is they want to be doing this healing work. They don't necessarily want to be doing the extraordinary amount of admin and marketing and all these different pieces. Do you have any uh, particular advice for new psychedelic therapists who are kind of breaking onto the scene, wanting to build a practice, but feeling quite intimidated by... The whole rigmarole of building a small business or building their own clinic, based on the experience of those you've worked with and your own insight into the space, would you have any advice for how they might go about doing it, or perhaps what alternatives are available to building a, your own independent small business?
1: Yeah, I would. My my instinct would. I've never done this, and nor do I know anyone who has done this. But my my instincts as a as a business builder would be to do it as lightly as possible from an infrastructure perspective. So you know, find someone within your network who can build you a nice you know beautiful landing page that articulates your vision and what you're bringing into this world, and then just get out there and start speaking to people, and the rest of it will follow. You know, I've I've been with Behold Retreats. We've we've pushed pretty hard over the past six months, and in the best ways possible. Um, The reason we been pushing is to get that feedback loop right as we begin to serve clients as we have hundreds if not thousands of conversations all of these feedback loops come to get closed and so the vision and the purpose and, and the the mechanisms become clear by that through that feedback uh, process so any any therapist that's out there i would i would encourage anyone who's early into anything I would look at, there's, there's a couple business person, right? There's a, there's a thing called the lean canvas, L E A N canvas. I would encourage you to look at that and to try to articulate your value proposition on that one page, because I think you'll, you'll enjoy that process. And then the second thing is just with this thing, just go and speak to as many people as you can about what you're doing and just see, see what comes of that, you know, go to, it doesn't have to be networked. You know, actually, I would, I would avoid plant medicine or psychedelic networking events, and I would go to your local, you know, backgammon. Go play backgammon with some people in your neighborhood. Go play, you know, whatever. It, it could be soccer. It could be any any mechanism to get to know new people in different networks and just begin to raise education and awareness. And I think, you know, that's the. I, my, my team, sometimes they, they, they laugh because I spend a lot of my time on education and awareness and they're like, Hey, it, you know, why don't you focus more on the money-making aspects of this business? I'm like, no, <laughs> no, because I care so much more about the education and awareness components. And, and that's what we, you know, anyone who's passionate about this space use your voice and go and network into other people and go change more minds and your business will flourish as a result of, you know, how, Hey, I had this crazy conversation. I was playing backgammon with this guy and he goes, Oh yeah, I've been hearing about, I've actually been wanting to understand more. And all of a sudden other people are introducing you into your practice. And so just get out there and chat to as many people as possible. And that's, you know, that's how you'll be able to bring more beautiful energy into this world. And that's how we can just really accelerate this, this subject globally.
0: That's great advice. You're talking about education and awareness being a primary focus of yours. And we started the conversation by talking about um, the reception of plant medicine in Asia. I'm curious if, based on the trajectories that you're seeing, and also as a business person and probably someone who's done some forecasting in your life, how do you see Asia changing in the next five to 10 years? with regard to plant medicine. Do you think we'll see any kind of decriminalization movements or are we, you know, way way behind that moment? Do you what, what do you see really changing?
1: Yeah, I think it'll change fast. Without giving away too much, I'm making pretty good progress with two of the governments in the region. And so that that's very exciting. I think there's an opportunity not just to allow this work in the region, but to actually think from a blank sheet of paper if you were to establish a if you were to establish the quote unquote right way to do plant medicine work from from a blank sheet of paper what what could that potentially look like rather than just trying to Pigeonhole the square peg into the into the round hole as we're seeing in the West and all of the compromises that need to be made. You know, in the West we've just got this obsession with compound isolation. Right, we we have to find this single molecule that is going to be the silver bullet for A, B, and C problems. And it's like, in in, in Asia they don't have that same obsession. You know, and so and so you can have you. I think we'll have much more productive conversations about using the actual plants themselves rather than going down the route of the requirement for patent A, B and C and all that nonsense and all this stuff that's moving us away from these beautiful plants. It's like, you know, I I, I'm a pretty optimistic person and I believe that in the end, the good things will win out, right? If, if there are services, if there's products that are more effective than others, then that will prove out over time. Even if there's billions of dollars of capital that are being poured into these specific areas to try to change this and change that and invent this new molecule. I'm like, look, we got the plants. We know, we know this is human work. Like the good stuff is going to, is going to win in the end. And so I'm excited to be, you know, a small, a small part of
0: that here in the region. It's awesome. I, I I love what you're doing there. Um, and you, you, you teased a little bit by saying you're working with governments and things might change. I am I'm, I'm <laughs> assuming that that's not something you can extrapolate more on. But I'm glad that you're I'm glad that you're there and that you're doing that work. It's very powerful what you're what you're up to.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you. Just just trying to help. Right. Um, I, I can share a little bit more. You know, my my real motivations is actually to once once behold retreats is moving in the right direction. I actually want to spend more of my time and energy consulting governments on these on this subject in particular, because this doesn't need to be an adversarial conversation. It just needs people that are willing to suit up and to go sit under fluorescent lighting for extended periods of time to help justice and health officials understand what this is and what it represents. And so I'm actually in the midst of launching a consulting company in parallel to, to to do so. And, and uh, very excited about the group of people that's, that's coming together around that. And we'll have to encourage them not to have too much fun because I think, I think it could be fun. And I think there's massive potential. It's just that, you know, when, when, when government officials are looking at psychedelics and and the associated culture, what they're seeing is something that's very colorful. There's a lot of piercings and tattoos and strange clothing and events, and you know, yeah, that's that's a beautiful expression of the psychedelic movement. I, I get that, I love that, but that's that's not something that is going to put you know a 52 year old justice or health official who's you know married with three kids at ease that's not necessarily the person who's going to get him over the line in terms of you know being receptive to a first clinical trial under the right context within within a given country and so uh, i think there's a real requirement for people to to take that angle not from the perspective of i want to be first to make a whole bunch of money but from the perspective of let's make sure that we are focused upon the end outcome here which is not lots of you know $10,000, $20,000 10 20,000 dollar behold retreats the end outcome here is that everyone has individual access so that everyone is el- able to elevate their own consciousness at a price point which is you know reasonable for at a price point which is reasonable for everyone there's 5 billion people in in the region honestly speaking only only 0.5% 0.3% of the population is going to be able to afford what we're offering so so you know that's 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 simply not good enough so so that's the that's the long game
0: beautiful Well, we're coming to the end of our time together and I always like to wrap up the psychedelic therapy podcast with giving my guests an opportunity to speak directly to the psychedelic therapists and healers Mm. who are doing this work or aspiring to do this work and just kind of give them a message, whether it's advice or congratulations or support, whatever message you'd most like to give to the healers who are involved in this work. What would you, what would you like to say to those folks?
1: There's a there's a powerful message from um, you you may you may know the the guy who who said it he's passed away unfortunately but it's his um, presentation is this is water do you know that uh, one David Avin?
0: is that David Foster Wallace
1: it is David Foster Wallace thank you yep. um, there's there's a message that he shares which I think is so powerful which is be pro stuff not anti-stuff. I think it was either him or it was Tim Minchin maybe. I may be getting too confused, apologies. But I think that message is so powerful is to be pro-stuff, be for something don't be against something. And and it's a nuance, but it's so important in particular at this juncture that, you know, I think there's so many dividing lines as I've, I've, I've spent so much of the last six months on the phone with people in the psychedelic industry. Right. And it's just incredible to understand the number of dividing lines. It's like, it's, 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 it's Beyond comical, if it wasn't also tragic, like you would just spend hours laughing at it. But but we need to, you know, we shouldn't let that get in the way of the beautiful work that we each individually want to be doing in this space. And so whatever each of us individually, you know, is drawn to, you know, this work is all about establishing our own individual moral compass and bringing that into the world in a way which is respectful of all other human beings, right? So anything that is moving away from... Being able to express that freedom, you know, th- that freedom individually is, is I think, it's, it's not really adding to our movement, right? And, and so I would encourage any psychedelic therapist to just focus upon the beautiful work that you're doing and how that's going to help people. And don't worry too much about yeah, but he's doing this and the shamanic that and this, and this. It's just like yeah, just focus on the beauty that you want to bring into the world, and like everything else will follow. And you know, I think Gandhi's Gandhi's message here is just entirely the right one. Right? It's be the be the change that you wish to see in this world, and that's the work that any of us can do is just to elevate our own consciousness. And by virtue of elevating our own consciousness, we'll encourage. Those of us who are around us to take notice, they'll begin to do their own work and that'll be the, that'll be the ticket. That'll be how we, you know, that's how we get the exponential result in terms of the collective elevation of consciousness and then debates about this and that and the other is just completely a thing of the past because it's, 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 just, it's just not the paradigm that we want to be stuck in. It's, we want to be, we want to be pro stuff, not anti stuff.
0: I hear you there. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining us today on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. It's been wonderful to get to know you and to feel your passion and, and see the trajectory that you're on. I love this idea of consulting governments because we need to change these policies. Absolutely. Um, for sure. How can people follow you? How can they connect with Behold Retreats? What are the Where are the best places for people to connect?
1: I'm always happy to connect. I'm at Jonathan—that's with an A, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N—at Behold-Retreats.com. Otherwise, you can find me on LinkedIn. You can find Behold Retreats at uh, on our website. Easy to find. You can find us on Instagram. Our our social media is still a little bit of a, a work in progress. It's not a, a massive priority for us at the moment. But yeah, we're—you know—we're our our primary motivation is networking into influential leaders and getting them across the line to find the courage to listen to the plan. So if there's anyone with uh, that's listening to this podcast, that's uh, in a position to help us network into more leaders then we'd love to hear from you. If there's anything that we can do for you equally, we're always happy to have a chat We're we're super collaborative, we're super flexible and, you know, we're listening to the plants. So that's, 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 that's the other message is like, just keep listening to what the plants have to say to us and, and we'll all win this one together. There's no need to, uh, to compete or, or anything along those lines.
0: I wish I could do a podcast with the plants themselves. I would call it listening uh-huh, to the plants. Yeah. <laughs> um, I like that. I like that. Jonathan, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's really been a pleasure.
1: Real pleasure, Eamon. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for joining us on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast. If you enjoyed this show, please join the Psychedelic Therapy Facebook group to talk about it. You can also share it with your friends or leave a review on iTunes so more people can discover the show. The Psychedelic Therapy Podcast is presented by Maya, a platform designed to help psychedelic therapists manage and measure client journeys. You can head to mayahealth.com to learn more. The show is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide mental health or medical advice. Thanks for listening.